Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As we often discuss on the podcast, many lawyers resist adopting new technology or innovative practices due to a fear of the unknown. Today's guest, however, embraces change management and is always looking to enhance the quality of legal services. Wendy Butler-Curtis is the Chief Innovation Officer and Chair of the eDiscovery and Information Governance Group at Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. Wendy started her career as a mass torts litigator, but later focused on e-discovery and operationalizing innovation, where she learned more about leveraging data and managing the litigation process. In her current role as CIO at Oric, she leads a team of lawyers, technologists, project managers, and business professionals who all work together to develop creative, client-focused solutions through novel products, streamlined processes, and technology. Additionally, Wendy continues practicing in the e-discovering space, working with Fortune 100 companies and major financial institutions to create and deploy e-discovery and records management programs. In 2018, she was named the most innovative lawyer of the year by the Financial Times. Today, Wendy talks about being exceptionally comfortable with change, the creative skills of lawyers, practicing while being a CIO, and the role of her innovation team in Oryx Talent Development. It was a real pleasure catching up with Wendy. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Wendy, thanks so much for making the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. Oryx has been a leader in transformational change and innovation for a long time. So I've been looking forward to uh, talking to one of the key drivers of that. But before we get into sort of your successes at Oric, let, let's back up a little bit. You start a more traditional path. You go to law school, you come out, you become a litigator at Fulbright. What made you want to be a lawyer? What is it in your your background or your family history that said, this is this is the career for me? So I anticipated you might ask me this question, Stephen, and I hoped I'd have a a thoughtful answer, but I'm going to start with my most authentic answer. I'm the first lawyer in my family, and I don't think I had any idea what it meant to be a lawyer until my job after my first year in law school. I took an aptitude test in seventh grade that told me I should be a forest ranger, a mortician, a hairdresser, or a lawyer. So I I don't think of those (laughs) occupations as necessarily fitting with one another. I'm also hoping that we're a more data-driven community now and so that the accuracy of those tests are better, but they got something. So that's, I think I, it was luck and um, I'm grateful for that luck because I truly love my profession. And I think that's what I find most rewarding about my job is the ability to be thinking about how the profession will change for the better and to facilitate that. Mortician, huh? <laughs> Just think of what could have been. <laughs> no, I think I think it's interesting that a lot of folks who are driving change don't come from backgrounds heavily influenced by lawyers. They, many people I talk to, they're the first lawyers in their family. They didn't really know what to expect. And I think that perhaps gives them a different perspective on what the law is like. I should add that I um, every generation of my family has served in the military, starting back in the Revolutionary War. We fought for the Republic, just in case there's any confusion. And I moved a lot. I went to three kindergartens, just by way of example. I had been to many countries before I was the age of five. I think my normal was not to have stability. 
And I don't think I realized until recently how different my sense of perception is and the way literally my brain is hardwired that I am exceptionally comfortable with change because that's what I knew is so much part of my life. And it's almost when things are too constant is when I feel unsettled rather than the reverse. That's interesting. That's not a typical lawyer trait. How do you adapt to, and again, I, we'll talk about work specifically in a, in a minute, but you obviously have connections with lots of lawyers in lots of places. And you know, as well as I do, that they're not as comfortable with change as you've just described yourself. How have you used your skill set and your your history to sort of accomplish that change dynamic? So I, um, when I was still um, trying cases, I had a judge once say to me, your perception is your reality. And that has very much stayed with me. And my perception is just very different. So there's obviously the experience of the child and, and the young adult with all of that disruption and where I lived and how I lived and who I knew. Literally, I lived in Iceland, like what the weather is and when the sun rises. But as I reflect back, there's also a wonderful approach in the military where a new person comes in to do a job every few years and that it is embraced that a new perspective comes in and that you think about something different and that you don't only do a single job forever. When I started the practice, that was not the way that law firms were structured. And that seemed odd to me. And I kept looking to think that you would do something different. You would bring somebody in to do something who hadn't done it before. And that was just my natural assumption and default position. It wasn't great wisdom. It was, again, my perception of what the normal is. My normal was so different than everybody else's. I didn't realize how different my perception was. And so I think from the start, I asked questions differently because that was my point of reference. That's interesting. I don't think of the military as being a great change agent. I've never heard that observation made before. It's to, I got to think about that. That's fascinating. In many ways, too, the, you know, the military was a meritocracy and was integrated much earlier than so many other parts of our country. And that sense of diversity in what you do, whether you know, you're the pilot on the airplane or you're the person who maintains the plane and the way that you see the plane and the problem so differently. And by having all of those views to the problem, you come up with a more creative solution. That's really, I think, at its best, what we're all trying to do in innovation. And it's the best in the changes that we're seeing in the team composition. It's not everyone who thinks about things the same way. And through our, our diversity program, we had the Admiral who was leading during the famous scene from the Tom Hanks movie where um, the captain was taken by the pirates. And she tells the story about how they were originally trying to solve the problem in a very narrow window of when they could do the rescue. And they couldn't find a solution. And they brought in all these other people of different levels of seniority and different experience. And that team, that team solved the problem and saved that life. And there's a great expression, right? A problem is unsolvable until you ask the right person and then the solution is apparent. That is one of the biggest changes that I've seen in the profession. When I started, it was all lawyers working on the case together, thinking about the problem singularly as lawyers. And now between having data professionals, technologists, project managers, statisticians, economists, and then, of course, not just talking to the law department, but the business client, you view the problem differently and the solutions that we can come up with are so much better. The multidisciplinary approach, it can't be overstated how important that is. And I always thought that was one of the great advantages the big four had over law firms because big four consulting pieces, teams are very multidisciplinary. And law firms, I've only learned this recently. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, and the other thing is I have this great memory <laughs> of law school and the Socratic method and 
Professor Hornstein asking me a question about a case, and I, you know, I gave an answer about the certain number of Greek drachmas that were at issue. I just had it all wrong. And he said, you know, at the time I was Butler, I wasn't married. Miss Butler, the reason why you went to law school is you clearly couldn't go to business school. And, at the time <laughs> it was, and he was wonderful, right? It was just oh, a good moment. But I mean, and you know, I learned a lot from Professor Hornstein, but it was this moment where absolutely. I never wanted to look in the Excel spreadsheet. I didn't understand business. That wasn't the way that my brain worked. That's almost all I do now. And I understand the legal problems that we're trying to solve so much better when I start first by asking what's the business problem. That's another piece of the of the transformation of the imagining the question differently. And part of what I know you're really active in, I hope I'm making a contribution, our chairman, Mitch Zuckley, what's the full scope of education that the next generation of lawyers need? Like just being able to see the problem, all the great science about when we understand the problem, we find purpose. And when we're working towards a common purpose, we perform better. And that being able to see the all sides you know, of the problem is amazing. And I think we'll find greater satisfaction in what we do as we continue to move that way. We're not just lawyers. We're not just risk mitigators. We're problem solvers. Yeah, this, this challenge in front of the profession uh, about how you train people to be lawyers, uh, I know that Mitch is good at this. You're good at it. Uh, Ralph was good at it. About seeing around the corner not just training people for how it was practiced yesterday, but thinking about how it's going to be practiced tomorrow and the next day. And I think that discussion has been more acute recently with the advent of generative AI and all the hysteria around the impact on the profession. But I don't think we do a good job of teaching our young people how to practice five years from now, as opposed to how to practice yesterday. So I um, I have a wonderful cul-de-sac um, it's my community and we've become even more close since COVID. And I'm just one of the things I'm most grateful about. And we have barbecues and cocktails almost every weekend. And I was sitting outside last weekend and my neighbor had his aunt in town who is a liberal arts professor at Rice. And we had a wonderful conversation. I have two kids in college about the importance of a liberal arts education and this idea that we're starting to devalue that in some ways. And her comments and you can imagine what they were about the being able to write, to think critically, to understand the world in its totality, to see all sides. There's a piece of this that I don't know today entirely how to teach the next generation of lawyers how to practice because it's going to change so much in the next two years. But I know that thinking of a problem singularly as a legal problem is not the way that we have to teach our lawyers. And so that piece I'm excited about. And I, you know, it's that idea of the liberal arts education, the critical thinking, that is our superpower. And the other thing I'll say, and when I'm talking about innovation, there's often a common refrain that lawyers aren't creative. And I couldn't disagree more. As we're trained to think critically, when you're thinking critically, that's where great creativity comes from. And I think giving the space to to do that, to train a little bit less, and I, Professor Hornstein was amazing, but that there's one right answer, and rather to look at the whole problem and come up with creative ideas, that's the exciting way to think about the profession. Oh, I think I think that's absolutely right. If you're that risk adverse, you know, if you keep layering risk on top of risk, you hamstring yourself. That's where the not creative issue comes from. But the creative thinking is by nature, you're right, by nature is very creative. You started as a litigator and you're, you're currently chair of the e-discovery and information governance group at ORIC. And one of the questions I had, I'll preface this a little bit. So, so excuse me for making this a longer question than I would normally ask. 
the e-discovery world, I've been at, I've been at this now a very long time. You know, I, re- I remember when people would go with boxes of documents and warehouses and sit and look through it. And then e-discovery came along and everybody said it's flash in the pan and you can't have technology or the technology is going to put us all out of a job. Or how do we train young people if they're not sitting in in rooms looking through boxes of documents? And yet that adoption curve, it's now you're almost committing malpractice if you're not using technology. And the idea of sending high-priced associates into rooms full of boxes of documents is just, we found other ways to train people. I don't know what your experience, I, I know you you overlapped some of that. Again, you haven't been at this quite as long as I have. So probably you don't go back quite to the dusty days in the warehouses. But that adoption curve, that technology cycle has to have informed or given you some basis for your current job, yeah? Absolutely. And I've been doing this a long time and I have been in a warehouse. I think I hit it just right as those large document reviews um, came. I was senior enough as an associate, but I've seen the change. I can understand what's possible and how dramatic the transformation can be, having been on the front lines of that. But I also understand how complicated that change can be and the scope of the impact as it's happening. And I take the lessons from that experience and that portion of my career where that has been my focus to everything else that I do. So in addition to being chief innovation officer, you also you also practice law. And that's not the typical path for a chief innovation officer. Oftentimes, these are full-time, non-practicing lawyers or other professionals. What's what's the benefit to you of continuing to practice at least at a, I know it can't possibly be full-time given you, you can't possibly have two full-time jobs, but at, at whatever level you're practicing, what's the benefit that, that brings on your other side of your job under the innovation piece? So I still love the practice of law and I consider it a personal privilege that I'm able to still do some. At my core, my job is to better serve my colleagues and to better serve my clients. And while I'm practicing, I'm not too far removed from some of those day-to-day pain points. Everything from, is there a better way to automate the way that we open our engagement letters to the way in which we do conflicts to the data analysis that I get on my billing against budget to the way in which the clients are asking for new counsel and doing an RFP to just seeing how the life of an in-house lawyer changes both as they're asking strategic innovation questions for the objectives of the law department, as well as how they're managing a day-to-day matter. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I get that. I think one of the challenges many firms face is that they put their innovation program into a box and say, that's those people's job to fix it, as opposed to integrating it in with the practice, feeling the pain points. And there's a number of different ways to do it, but you've obviously found one way to do it that works for you. Let me ask, Oric has had a long tradition of innovation. You've won awards for 20 years, probably longer ago than that. And obviously, you and your team have lifted it to new heights, but you came into the job with a culture and a history and a tradition of, of innovation. And obviously, that's a testament to Mitch, and it's a testament to his predecessor, Ralph. But it can't just be two chairs who have this idea that has to be more to it. To what do you attribute the success? How has this become a cultural icon for Oric? So our team, the innovation team, has the incredible benefit of working at Oric. 
So to your point, we couldn't do what we do and we couldn't execute on the vision and ideas of our colleagues in the way that we do anywhere else. Oric is a special place for many reasons, but the idea that it is a intellectually safe place to ask a question why or to suggest to do something different or to bring a crazy idea is just front and center to who we are. And so there's often a misperception that as chief innovation officer, all the great innovations that are happening at Oric and for our clients are because of me. And that could not be further from the truth. Our team exists to bring the ideas and insights of our colleagues to life and to give everybody across the firm. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody, the skills to think about how we can do our jobs better. And I will just repeat and circle back to the idea that It is very much a part of everyone's job to ask themselves the questions. Is there something we could be doing differently? Do I see a pain point? But also we respect each other so deeply and we have a culture that it is a safe place to raise your hand and have an idea and it being perfectly acceptable. And, you know, the joke that I make is I have at least 10, sometimes 100 ideas a day. And I'm hopeful that one or two of them might be a good idea. And that's just who we are and what we expect. And we also fully embrace that the idea may not be a great one or it might even be a terrible one, but from a bad idea can arise a great idea. And if you're not challenging, if you're not asking, if you're not pausing, then we're really not doing our jobs. And it's also part of the strategy of the firm. It is important and we prioritize making time to think about how do we better support each other? How do we work smarter? How do we better support our clients? And what are the needs that they have that just aren't being met? Listening to your clients is a critical part of, of innovation, of design thinking. And I know, I know that's a critical part of your mission. And there's a certain way you have to listen to your clients to understand their pain points and their business issues that my experience is doesn't always come naturally to lawyers. How do you impart this? And it's a learn, it's a, it's a learned skill. How do you impart this skill to an organization, particularly given the size of work and the continued growth and new people come in and how do you train people and how to listen for the problems before jumping to solutions? So we can always be better. Um, I think all of us in all capacities of our life could always be better listeners. And we, the innovation team who have the privilege, I think in the last 24 months, I think we're now at like 220 clients that we've sat down and had meaningful innovation conversations. We're still learning also. But I I would say that some of the biggest takeaways that we've learned is, again, that every conversation is different, that the preparation from the meeting is very rarely at all related to the legal work that we're doing. And this is an innovation conversation about the objectives of a law department versus the objectives of an individual matter. But going back to what we were talking about before, Stephen, what's happening in the business? What objectives has the CEO set for the company? And to frame the questions And the listening really about the broader strategy and also the other piece that's so different in the innovation conversations that we have in contrast to providing legal services on a particular matter. I don't have all the answers and we often won't have all the answers and that's okay. Sometimes our value is connecting one client with another to say that the idea is an early idea in the market to actually give a sense that something that a client is contemplating starting is something that has been done with success. Some of our value, in fact, I think we hear often a lot of our value is to share what hasn't worked. If we've tried something similar or if another client has tried something similar, obviously keeping the appropriate confidences. But the other part that's so exciting about what we do and the conversations that we have is we may say, 
you know, gosh, we tried that a year ago and here's why it didn't work or two clients tried and they really ran into problems. But today's a new day. And because it didn't work yesterday doesn't mean it won't work today. And that ability to adapt and see the world differently constantly is really what's so exciting about what we do. And um, I think it's a big part of how we frame the conversation. It's just an entirely different structure than what is the bulk supplier doctrine in the 50 states. That's a Right. It's a different question than you have a new CEO and they just set a new strategy for the firm. Does the law department have a similar or a strategy to align with those goals? And how might we help you with that? Just entirely different kinds of conversations. Embedded in your question is also an assumption that the innovation team is inherently better. It's incredible to watch our colleagues have the conversations also because they're so steeped in their knowledge of a client. And so as we ask a question like I just asked, they'll frame it a little bit differently. And the follow-up question is so much more thoughtful because they know the client's business. And it's that combination that is really powerful. And I don't think one, you know, going back to having people with different skills and different experience as a combined team makes you all the stronger. Having multiple people participate in the conversations who are thinking about the question differently just enhances the depth and insight of the conversation. Oh, absolutely. You, you talk about the innovation team. Give us a sense for how the team is composed, sort of size and skill sets. Sure. So we have several businesses within the business. We have Auric Analytics, which is a team that supports every practice group and business unit in the firm in all kinds of tasks related to data. It's become an important I think importance not, doesn't even say it strongly enough, a critical part in the way that we support our clients. And they also are incredible subject matter experts in all technologies around data and the delivery of legal services. We have KStream, which is a group that we created. It's a people process approach to how we manage our matters, having information available to people when they need it, where they need it. And they also have recently for example, adopted a new technology that automates the way in which we receive, file, and distribute information from our courts. And they're subject matter experts on litigation analytics and providing that information to our litigators every time we open a new matter. We have Oric Labs, which is our skunk works. We generally prefer to buy before we build, but there are often circumstances where we need to build our own solution or we need to use technology that we license to build a custom solution. We have our senior innovation leaders, and we are the folks who often have the innovation conversations that we described. Our research and information group is also part of innovation. If you think about all of that information that law firms purchase and the opportunity to really overlay that in the services that we provide, and as you said, Stephen, to use that to see around corners and what are the market trends, we are creating a new data team that will be kind of adjacent to the innovation team. And we are so excited for them to arrive. They will focus more on the data associated with how we, the business of law, but you can't separate one from the other. And a business transformation team. So we, the broader innovation team looks at technology in terms of how we practice law, but there's a whole area of transformation happening in the business of law. And so that team will help lead that. We have folks that do process mapping. I know this was a, a big part of the efficiencies and focus that you had, Stephen, when you were driving towards you know the thoughtful way in which we do things. And that we look at on a matter level as well as at a business unit level. And then we have the observatory, which is free to the market that's maintained by the innovation team. And that tracks about, we're about 650 legal technologies 
just as a place to go and look, are there categories of technology that do a particular thing? How many companies are there? That's a quick overview. I'm sure there are things I'm forgetting, but I also want to be thoughtful of time and um, not talk too much about us. One question, as you talk about your, your the functionality, you make an observation in your in your bio on LinkedIn that one of the things you do is is help accelerate our talent models transformation to attract the highest quality talent to non-traditional law firm roles, which caught my attention because this integrated approach to people and process and technology has always been a, a driver of mine. And so I'm curious as to the role the innovation team plays in that talent model development and transformation because people is a key component of those of those three things. You made the comment earlier about how extraordinary Oric is and Siobhan Hanley is our chief talent officer and her commitment to anticipating what the next generation of lawyers needs now, her thoughtfulness about supporting our lawyers. I just don't think there's anybody else who is as creative or as thoughtful as Siobhan. And we work really to next to it and also to support her priorities. So for example, I um, met the CEO of Legal Innovators, which is now a key strategic partner of ours and introduced him to Siobhan Hanley. And we now have an alternative talent pipeline through Legal Innovators. They're good, aren't they? They're wonderful. We, um, part of the innovation team, we help uh, manage our legal tech fund. So Oric makes investments in early stage legal tech companies. As we've talked about a lot, there's always an opportunity to train better. We invested in, through the legal tech fund in Alta Claro, which is a dynamic training platform that provides real-time feedback. And of course, then the lawyer development team and our talent team is then using that to really change the way that we think about training. We're constantly thinking about different roles, including some of those that I just described to you. We've had um, innovation fellows, so lawyers who are focusing on innovation for a portion of their time at Oric. And then um, we collaborated with Siobhan to create the Creditable Innovation Hours. And I think if we were not the first firm, we were one of the first to give hours that are um, considered for annual bonuses that are devoted to innovation projects. And that's, again, just messaging back on behalf of the whole firm how important we think innovation is. Uh, that's fascinating. I think that's a, that's another problem some firms have where they put their innovation team in a silo. They're not connecting. you got to understand the incentives that drive people and compensation is, is one of the incentives that drive people and giving them credit is, uh, I know you guys were, again, if not the first, one of the first to do that. So congratulations. Thank you. I can't let you go without, without of course, at least obligatorily talking about generative AI and the impact <laughs> on the profession. I guess I have a particular view that we've been dealing with AI in some form for, for a long time between automation and augmentation and now generation. And I see the transformative power of the technology. And I think it's the speed of it that's got everybody up in arms. And I think it will transform the practice. But I'm curious as to your thoughts as to the broader impact of it and where you see this going. So I, like everyone, have some fears about generative AI out in the world and what that might mean. As we all do. But I could not be more excited and inspired by the impact I think it could have for the profession. What we do is intense. It is deadline driven. And this is transactional lawyers and litigated. It's unpredictable. It's hard to manage life. It's hard to set boundaries. And there's often a demand to do things that seem faster than are humanly possible. 
As you said, with the point of speed, Stephen, what we're seeing is you can go from a blank piece of, I'm quoting my colleague, Kate Orr, who's the global head of practice innovation. You go from a blank piece of paper to a first draft. It may be a first draft that would have been generated by a first year lawyer, but in seconds. And what otherwise would have taken days, you have information that you need and you can get information in a way that's so user-friendly in just a matter of seconds. Also, there are parts of our job, especially when we're so busy, that we really don't enjoy doing and are not the highest, best use of our time. These technologies can take that off our plate so that we can do the things that we find so rewarding and are the reason why we went to law school, the reason why we wake up excited to be part of the profession. And I firmly believe it can bring a little bit more balance because you can go faster, because you can predict a little bit better how long something will take. And you can focus on the things that are really judgment-based and not on the things that aren't. So it is early. It is not perfect. But I, and I love that this is the last question, I think there is incredible opportunity to bring some more balance back to the profession that we all really, really need. You're absolutely right. And it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes, isn't it? And to keep up. <laughs> that's yes. yes, that's right. We're all we're all we're all like ducks, right? Calm on the surface, but paddling frantically underneath. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, I know we're out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation, and uh, you guys do such impressive stuff over there at Oric. Congratulations on on the team's accomplishments and the firm's accomplishments in this space. And thank you for the conversation today. Well, before we finish, I want to thank you. We may all. At moments feel like competitors, but on these kinds of changes, we're working together and having the opportunity to have the sense of collegiality and sharing ideas and getting excited about what the future holds. And I know you have been a, a longstanding leader in the space and willing to bring us together. And I really thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.